Section 1 of the Story of the First Transcontinental Railroad. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. The Story of the First Transcontinental Railroad by William Francis Bailey. Section 1. Preface. For some reason, the people of today are not nearly as familiar with the achievements of the last fifty years as they are with those of earlier days. The schoolboy can glibly recount the story of Columbus, William Penn, or Washington, but asked about the events leading up to the settlement of the West will know nothing of them and will probably reply, they don't teach us that in our school, and it is true. Outside of the names of our presidents, the rebellion, and the Spanish-American War, there is practically nothing of the events of the last fifty years in our school histories, and this is certainly wrong. Peace hath her victories as well as war, and it is to the end that one of the great achievements of the last century may become better known that this account of the first great Pacific Railroad was written. It was just as great an event for Lewis and Clark to cross the Rockies as it was for Columbus to cross the Atlantic. The Mormons not only made friends with the Indians, as did Penn, but they also made the desert to blossom as the rose. In Washington's battles at Princeton, White Plains, and Yorktown were but little more momentous in the results then Sandy Forsyth's on the Republican, Custer's on the Washita, or Crook's in the Sierra Madre. The construction of the Union Pacific Railroad was of greater importance to the people of the United States than the inauguration of steamship service across the Atlantic or the lane of the Atlantic Telegraph. Yet the one has been heralded from time to time, and the other allowed to sink into temporary obscurity. To make good Americans of the coming generation, all that is necessary is to make them proud of American achievements, and the West was and is a field full of such. The building of the Pacific Railroad was one of the great works of man. Its promoters were men of small means and little or no financial backing outside of the aid granted them by the government. It took nerve and good Yankee grit to undertake and carry out the project. How it was done, it is hoped, the succeeding pages may show. Fair Oaks, California, 1906 Poem, read at the celebration of the opening of the Pacific Railroad, Chicago, May 10th, 1869 Ring out, O bells, let cannons roar, in loudest tones of thunder. The iron bars from shore to shore are laid in nation's wonder. Through deserts vast and forests deep, through mountains grand and hoary, a path is opened for all time, and we behold the glory. We who but yesterday appeared, but settlers on the border, where only savages were reared mid chaos and disorder. We wake to find ourselves midway in continental station and send our greetings either way across the mighty nation. We reach out towards the golden gate and eastward to the ocean, 
The tea will come at lightning rate, and likewise Yankee notions. From spicy islands off the west, the breezes now are blowing, and all creation does its best to set the greenbacks flowing. The eastern tourist will turn out and visit all the stations, for Pullman runs upon the route with most attractive rations. From the Chicago Tribune, May 11, 1869. Chapter 1. The Project and the Projectors President Jefferson, first to act on a route to the Pacific, Lewis and Clark Expedition, Oregon Missionaries, Railroad Suggested, Mills, 1819, The Emigrant, 1832, Parker, 1835, Dr. Barlow's Plan, Hartwell's Carvers, John Plums, Asa Whitney, Senator Benton's National Road. It would appear that Thomas Jefferson is entitled to the credit of being the first to take action towards the opening of a road or route between the eastern states and the Pacific coast. While he was in France in 1779, as American envoy to the court of Versailles, he met one John Ledyard, who had been with Captain Cook in his voyage around the world, in the course of which they had visited the coast of California. Out of the acquaintance grew an expedition, under Ledyard, that was to cross Russia and the Pacific Ocean to Alaska, thence take a Russian trading vessel from Sitka to the Spanish-Russian settlement on Nukta Sound, coast of California, and from there proceed east, overland, until the settlements that confined to the Atlantic seaboard were reached. Through the efforts of Jefferson, the expedition was equipped and started. The Russian government had promised its support, but when the party had crossed Russia, were within 200 miles of the Pacific, Ledyard was arrested by order of the Empress Catherine, the then ruler of Russia, and the expedition broken up. Jefferson became president in 1801. In 1803, on his recommendation, Congress made an appropriation for sending an exploring party to trace the Missouri River to its source, to cross the highlands, i.e. Rocky Mountains, and follow the best route thence to the Pacific Ocean. So interested was Jefferson that he personally prepared a long and specific letter of instructions and had his confidential man placed in charge. The object of your mission, said Jefferson, in this letter of introduction, is to explore the Missouri River and such other streams as by their course would seem to offer the most direct and practicable communication across the continent for the purpose of commerce. This expedition, known as the Lewis and Clark, made in 1804 to 1806, brought to light much information relative to the West and demonstrated conclusively the feasibility of crossing overland, as well as the resources of the country traversed. As a result, the Far West became the mecca of the fur trappers and traders. Commencing with the Astoria settlement in 1807, for the next 40 years, or until the opening of the Oregon immigration of 1844, they were practically the only whites to visit it outside of the missionaries. 
who did more or less exploring and visiting the Indians, resulting in the Reverend Jason Lee in 1833 and Dr. Marcus Whitman in 1835, having established mission stations in Oregon. The next record is of one Robert Mills of Virginia, who suggested in a publication on internal improvements in Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina, issued in 1819, the advisability of connecting the head of navigation of some one of the principal streams entering the Atlantic with the Pacific Ocean by a system of steam-propelled carriages, H.R. Document 173, 29th Congress. This was before there was a mile of steam railroad in the world, and under the then-existing circumstances was so chimerical as to hardly warrant mention. In a weekly newspaper published in 1832 at Ann Arbor, Michigan, called The Emigrant, appeared what was probably the first suggestion in print on the advisability of a Pacific Railroad. The article suggests the advisability of building a line from New York to the mouth of the Oregon, Columbia River, by way of the south shore of Lake Erie and Lake Michigan, crossing the Mississippi River between 41 and 42 north latitude, the Missouri River about the mouth of the Platte, thence to the Rocky Mountains near the source of the last-named river, crossing them and down the valley of the Oregon to the Pacific. It further suggested that it be made a national project, or this failing the grant of three million of acres to a company organized for the purpose of constructing it. No name was signed to the article, but the probabilities are that it was written by S. W. Dexter, the editor of the paper. With the Whitman party leaving the east for the far northwest to establish a mission station was the Reverend Samuel Parker, a Presbyterian minister, who was sent under the auspices of the missionary board of his church to investigate and report on the mission situation and to suggest a plan for Christianizing the Indians. He crossed the continent to Oregon, and on his return in 1838, his journal was published. It presented a very correct and interesting account of the scenes he visited. In it, he says, there would be no difficulty in the way of constructing a railroad from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, and the time might not be so far distant when trips will be made across the continent as they are now to Niagara Falls to see nature's wonders. To just whom belongs the credit of being the first to advocate a railroad to the Pacific coast is in dispute. No doubt the idea occurred to many at the time they were being introduced and successfully operated in the East. The two items referred to seem to be the first record of the idea or possibility. About the same time, although the date is not positively fixed, Dr. Samuel Bancroft Barlow, a practicing physician of Greenville, Massachusetts, commenced writing articles for the newspapers, advocating a Pacific Railroad and outlining a plan for its construction. His proposition contemplated a railroad from New York City to the mouth of the Columbia River, 
as illustrating the lack of knowledge regarding the cost and operations of railroads, we quote from his writings, premising the length of the road would be 3,000 miles and the average cost $10,000 per mile. We have $30 million as the total cost, and were the United States to engage in its construction, three years' time would be amply sufficient. At the very moderate rate of 10 miles an hour, a man could go from New York to the mouth of the Columbia River in 12 days and a half. Another enthusiast was Hartwell Carver, grandson of Jonathan Carver, the explorer of 1766. His proposition was to build a railroad from Lake Michigan, Chicago, to the South Pass, with two branches from there, one to the mouth of the Columbia River and the other due west to California. South Pass received its name from being south of the pass in general use. Strange to say his true Pacific route, formulated without knowledge of the lay of the land, was absolutely the best, and the one that today is followed by the Union Pacific Railway and affiliated lines, substituting Granger for South Pass. Carver's proposition was to build the line by a private corporation, who were to receive a grant of land for the right-of-way, the whole distance, with the privilege of taking from the public lands material used in construction, with the further privilege of purchasing from the United States government 8 million acres of selected lands from the public domains at $1.25 per acre, payable in the stock of the company. His road was to be laid on stone foundations and to be equipped with sleeping cars, dining cars, and salon cars. His ideas as to the cost of the work were far too low, but outside of this he was seemingly inspired. At the time he was writing, 1835, there were 797 miles of railroads in operation in the United States. Passenger coaches were patterned after the old stagecoach, the track ironed straps on wooden stringers. Yet here he was outlining what today is an accomplished fact, a railroad with stone ballast from Chicago to the South Pass, Granger, Wyoming, one branch diverging from there to the mouth of the Columbia, Portland, Oregon, the other to California, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, California, traversed by trains comprised of sleeping cars, dining cars, and buffet cars, the Union Pacific and its connections. Carver spent the best years of his life, and what was in those days an ample fortune in endeavoring to further his project. The great opposition to his plan arose from the proposed diversion of the public lands and the stock feature, neither Congress nor the public taking kindly to the idea of the government giving lands for stock in a private corporation. A third proposition was fathered by John Plume of Dubuque, Iowa, who suggested at a public meeting held at his hometown in March of 1838 that a railroad be built from the Great Lakes to the Columbia River. His plan contemplated an appropriation from Congress of alternate sections of the public lands on either side of the right-of-way. The company to be capitalized 
at $100 million, 20 million shares at $5 each, 25 cents per share to be paid down to provide a fund to commence operations and subsequent assessments of like amount to be paid as the money was needed until the full amount had been paid in. 100 miles to be constructed each year and the whole line completed in 20 years. All of these propositions were more or less visionary and advanced by men of theory with little or no capital. They had the effect of awakening public interest and paved the way for a more feasible plan. The question of a Pacific Railway, its practicability, earnings, and effect were constantly before the people. In 1844, the idea had become firmly fixed, the leading advocate being a New York merchant named Asa Whitney, who has been called the father of the Pacific Railway. Mr. Whitney had spent some years in commercial life in China, returning to the United States with a competency. Becoming enthused with the idea, he put his all, energy, time, and money, into the project of a transcontinental railroad, finding many supporters. At first he advocated Carver's plan, but becoming convinced that it was not feasible, he sprung a new one of his own. He proposed that Congress should give to him, his heirs and assigns, a strip of land sixty miles wide with the railroad in the center, this from a point on Lake Michigan to the Pacific Coast. This land he proposed to colonize and sell to immigrants from Europe. From the proceeds, build the line, retaining whatever surplus there might be after its completion as his own. Whitney was an indefatigable worker, thoroughly in earnest, a fluent speaker, both in public and private, well fortified with statistics and arguments. He personally traveled the whole country, from Maine to 15 miles up the Missouri River. The legislatures of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Maryland, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia all endorsed his plan by favorable resolutions. The Senate Committee on Public Lands made a report recommending his proposition. Thus strongly endorsed, his plan was brought before Congress in 1848 in a bill entitled Authorizing Asa Whitney, His Heirs or Assigns, to Construct a Railroad from Any Point on Lake Michigan or the Mississippi River He May Designate, in a line as nearly straight as practicable, to some point on the Pacific Ocean where a harbor may be had. The road to be six-foot gauge, 64-pound rails, the government to establish tolls and regulate the operation of the line, Whitney to be the sole owner and receive a salary of $4,000 per year for managing it. The proposition was debated for days in the Senate and then was tabled on a vote of 27 to 21. The opposition dwelt largely on the length of time Whitney would necessarily require. Say he would colonize and sell a million acres a year. This would only be funds enough to build 100 miles and consequently 
the 2,000 miles would require at least 20 years. The defeat was largely owing to the opposition of Senator Benton of Missouri, the most pronounced friend of the West in the House, who used the argument of the power and capital it would put in the hands of one man, Whitney's. This he characterized as a project to give away an empire, larger in extent than eight of the original states, with an ocean frontage of 60 miles, with contracting powers and patronage exceeding those of the president. Upon the defeat of Whitney's project, Benton brought forward in 1849 one of his own for a great national highway from St. Louis to San Francisco, straight as may be, with branches to Oregon and Mexico. The government to grant a strip one mile wide, so as to provide room for every kind of road, railway, plank, mechanized, and electric motor, or otherwise constructed were not so practicable or advantageous. Sleighs to be used during those months when snow lay on the ground. Funds for its construction to be provided by the sale of public lands. Bear in mind this was only 56 years ago, but 18 years before the Union Pacific Railway was completed, and was the proposition advocated by the recognized leader of the Senate in matters western. Up to the year 1846, when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Mexico, ceded to us California, our only territory on the Pacific coast was Oregon and Washington. The acquisition of California, followed very shortly by the gold discoveries and the consequent influx of people, gave that state a large population and furnished a prospective business for a Pacific railway. This had heretofore been a matter of theory, very questionable to say the least, being based on very hazy estimates of the prospective volume of trans-Pacific business. With an active and aggressive population of 300,000 in California, practically all of Eastern birth and affiliations, the situation became materially changed and the necessity of railroad communication apparent. Both great political parties pledged their support in their quadrennial platforms. Presidents Pierce, Buchanan, and Lincoln, in their several messages to Congress, strongly recommended its construction. The matter had been thoroughly discussed, both in and out of Congress, and the whole country was convinced of the advisability of its construction, and only awaited a leader and a feasible plan. From 1850 to 1860, the question vied with that of slavery and public interest. Survey after survey was undertaken by the government and private parties. Senator Benton, being the first to introduce a resolution looking to the appropriation of sufficient money to pay for a survey, this being in 1851. The question of the North and South entered into the matter, as it did everything else in the days preceding the rebellion. You shall not build through free soil, said the South, and we won't permit it to run through the slave states, said the North. Compromise was out of the question, and it was not until the Southern element had been eliminated from Congress by their succession 
was any action possible. It was found that private corporations, duly aided by land grants from the government, were able to build the necessary connecting links through the comparatively level country between Chicago and St. Louis and the Missouri River. From the Missouri River west, it was felt that the undertaking was too great for any one set of men or corporation. Besides, local interests in California were already in the field. Consequently, two companies were determined upon, one of them working eastward, the other westward. And it was thus arranged. End of Preface and Section 1. Recording by Paul Harvey.